When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think the only criticism you can make of Haig is that the bat is on his crystal ball and worn down a bit because you know, he fails to accurately foresee what's going to happen in 15, 20 years' time. But it, you know, the, the mass mechanisation of most, but not all, armies really is not being seen by many people in the, in the early 20s. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, if you look at his record as Commander-in-Chief of the BAF, he very much pushes the development of the tank because he says that anything that will save casualties is worth pushing. He employed it earlier probably than he should have done, but he did so because he, as he said, anything that'll save save lives. He pushed aviation. I mean, he'd learned of the values of aviation when he was in India as, as Inspector General of Cavalry, and he, and he certainly supported aviation. He uh, supported the introduction of, of, of the development of gas um, as, as, a, as a weapon. So he's not a Luddite at all. Hello and welcome to the last pod of 2023 and I have a treat. We're continuing our series on great British commanders and it's World War One and Douglas Haig, to some Butcher Haig, but to others responsible for some of the greatest ever victories of British military history in the 100-day campaign of 1918. Gary Sheffield and Gordon Corrigan join me to discuss Haig, his early career, his role in the Curragh Mutiny, his World War One career, why he was so impressive and whether he was afraid of technology. Both Gary and Gordon are hugely distinguished historians of the Great War, and they're always good value to listen to. As this is the last episode of the year, I want to thank all you listeners for sticking with the pod. I'm going to be changing the logo for 2024 so you won't have to see my old mug anymore. Plenty of great history is coming up, so I do hope you can join me for that. But in the meantime, I'm going to hand you over to Gary, Gordon and myself on Douglas Haig. Gordon Corrigan, Gary Sheffield, welcome to, this is actually the second in our series of great British commanders, and it's a great pleasure to have you on. Last time we were discussing Bill Slim, who who qualified as the top British commander of the Second World War, and so uh, I'm the adjudicator on the First World War, because I've written zero books on the First World War, and Douglas Haig qualified as the top British commander for the uh, for the First World War. But welcome, Gordon. Welcome, Gary. Hello. Hello. And so I think it's fair to say that Haig has had a bit of a poor reputation over the past few years. But that's going, I think, post-60s, actually. And probably Lloyd George caused trouble soon after Haig's death. So, but actually, in the last few years, his reputation has improved. So, Gary, you you've written two two editions of his letters. Uh, and, no, no, two editions of his biography. Yes, and then two different um, editions of his. No, why don't you just say it? Uh, right, I, I've edited his letters and diaries with uh, my friend and colleague. John Bourne. I then published a biography of him called The Chief, which was then, uh, I then did a, a, a revised version of that with new material in which uh, uh, the publisher insists on having a different title. So that came out as Douglas Haig from the Somme to Victory. And then uh, about three years ago, I published a book called In Haig's Shadow, in which I came across a new collection of material uh, by Haig and letters to Haig. And uh, having sworn never to look at the man again, it was too good an offer to turn down. So I've actually written probably three and a half books on Haig, four four different titles anyway. Okay, so we're we're in the presence of a um, probably the foremost expert. And then Gordon, you've of course written a number of books on the First World War, but Mud, Blood, and Poppycock it was the one that was our book of the month in a recent edition of the magazine to go with Gary's forgotten victory both 
excellent books on the First World War. So we're in. I'm in very good company here. Yeah, uh, I've also written um, a number of e-books, um, which I started doing when, when COVID hit, uh, including uh, Hague, Hero or Villain. You can guess what uh, side I came down on. And uh, a comparison, Hague versus Montgomery, which I find quite interesting doing the, the research on that. So I think, I suspect Gary and I are ad idem on the subject of Hague. That's why we need laughing or you, you uh, actually, Oliver, you've got to be a, you've got to be a laughing, a reincarnated laughing. I, I will have, you'll have to make do with me. Yes. So, uh, well, let's start with his early career because he's a Scotsman, isn't he? Um, yes, he's born in Edinburgh in uh, 1861. Well, he's, he's had quite an interesting background because he's a, uh, from what the, the late Victorians would have called trade, as in he's from the Hague whiskey family. And his father made a pile of money uh, as, a, as, as, as a whiskey baron. And um, the, the family go a very, very traditional route, as in they make a lot of money. They send him to uh, an English, interestingly, public school. It's Clifton College. And he goes from there to Oxford, and he actually doesn't he doesn't finish his degree purely because he's ill and so therefore doesn't have sufficient uh, time in in college. So he leaves without a degree, goes off to Sandhurst, joins a smart cavalry regiment, the Seventh Hussars. So actually, as late as the First World War, some of his enemies are sneering at him because he 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 comes from a slightly less than blue blooded background. But I think I, I, I don't. Gordon would agree with me. I think what the interesting thing about Haig is that up to the point of the Boer War, there's nothing particularly exceptional about him. He's like many, many other um, Victorian officers. Uh, and it's only from the Boer War onwards does his career really take off. He goes from captain in 1899 to major general in, I think, 1903, which is, even by the standards of the, of the time, is a huge jump. So actually, the, the, the Boer War is the making of him. Yeah, I mean, I think the point to make is that he did not have any influence. He did not have powerful backers. He wasn't from a military family. And so everything he achieved was by his, his own efforts and his own ability. And, and actually, that was recognized fairly early on. He became adjutant after only, of his regiment after only three years. Now, that uh, is normally, even today, is somebody who's given to uh, a job is given to, to a middle piece captain. Uh, to be made adjutant after only three years is really quite quite extraordinary, but uh, but as Gary says, of course, we came to the the public eye. Really, it was it was the South African War, both um, in command of a column and 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 later a regiment, and as effectively chief of staff of a division. Now he was too junior to be made chief of staff. He was the DAAG, but but in fact he controlled. Uh, what happened in that division, and that's really where he, I think he he made his name to the big army, as opposed to making it in in regimental circles. That's, that's right, and I think there there is an interesting argument about whether Haig had he pursued the staff officer path rather than the command path. You can well imagine him rising to very high rank in the First World War and not attracting anything like the same criticism. He has in posterity because he's actually is a very good staff officer. Yeah, I mean, um, he 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 went to staff college, which then was was two years, and then I think he was only a, actually a staff officer for three years um, before he became before he commanded a regiment. So he had eleven years regimental duty, uh, and really only five years as a staff officer, as a, as a junior staff officer. And as Gary says, um, he would have made a brilliant chief of staff at, at any level without question um and he wouldn't have attracted the flack that he attracted as commander-in-chief but he's involved he plays quite an important role in the current meeting he doesn't he's the advisor to forgetting the name now well um no. actually he 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 plays a, a role in the current mutiny in the sense he manages to sort of steer a middle path through it because Clearly, he's very uncomfortable with what is going on because he is a, a big and small C conservative. And for, for those who don't know, the current mutiny, current is, is, is a better term, uh, occurs in uh, early 1914 when the Liberal government is trying to force through the Home Rule uh, Bill, which actually will give Home Rule to Ireland. 
and the north of Ireland is very uh, opposed to this. And there is the suspicion that the um, the cavalry brigade at the Curragh camp outside Dublin is going to be sent north to coerce Ulster into accepting uh, home rule. And the a group of officers led by uh, uh, Hubert Goff threatened to send in their papers to resign rather than do this. Which is, So it's a long way short of a mutiny, but clearly it is a challenge to political authority. And the key thing is that um, Johnny Goff, who's Hubert Goff's brother, uh, is Hay Haig's uh, closest staff officer. And so Haig really is getting involved at arm's length. But he manages to sort of steer his way through that. Um, but it's something which is certainly some historians like Ian Beckett have looked at. But it always strikes me that the impact of the Curra on what happens during the First World War has been underplayed because the army in 19, in August, the Ghost War in August 1914, is riven by uh, factions, uh, a lot of which has got to do with the Curra. Which, which side of the argument are, are, are you on? And Haig is very, very uncomfortable with that. At least that, that's my, my, my take on it. But you mentioned Hubert Goff there, and he he's up to his neck in it, but he goes on to have a big command. Obviously, it ends in tears, but you, you could be a key player in the, not necessarily the mutiny, but in the uh, the rumblings, and you could end up with a big command. Well, I, 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 absolutely, you, 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 you could. And in fact, there is an argument that uh, the Kaiser did the British Army a huge favour by starting the war when he did, because it actually pulled the army together at, at, at a critical point. Uh, so, so yes, actually, so having got involved in the Curra doesn't necessarily blight your career, but it can make life quite quite difficult. So, for example, there's uh, one uh, player who's very much on the other side of the debate uh, is is Philip Howell of the of the Fourth Hussars, uh, who later becomes Chief of Staff of Second Corps. And that makes for life very interesting when Second Corps gets placed under Goff's reserve army on the Somme. You know, there's all these personality factors with the Curra in the mix of everything else. So, so the army is not exactly a happy, happy band of brothers on the outbreak of war. Yeah, I mean, French uh, had to be removed, the CIGS, for making assurances to the potential uh, retirees that he had no right to give. Uh, but it doesn't stop them becoming commander of the BAF when we go to war. So as Gary says, there, there are all these little um, nuances playing. Um, how much effect they actually had on the performance of the army, I, I think has possibly been been exaggerated. But but it was certainly, it was certainly a factor, yeah. Okay, so well, we get to um, the BEF going over the channel and uh, under... Sir John French. Now he he sadly didn't make the final few um, names for the uh, greatest British commander of the First World War. I mean, there aren't that many candidates, are there? Really, who who would be Haig's competitors in in this uh, in this competition? <laughs> well, um, I suppose you'd have to look at some of the Middle East commanders. I suppose you'd have to look at Alan Bay as, as a cavalry commander in Palestine. Maud, you would have to compare him with. I don't think he. I don't think he would. Uh, he would come up to the Hague standards. Marshall, Maud's Mar successor in in, in Mes possibly. Yeah, Chetwood, no Chetwood. Uh, well, can 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 I can I just be my uh, my 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 appalling academic self by saying it depends on what you mean by we did define our terms. What are the Problem. I mean, this is this is a serious point. One of the problems of comparing Haig with anybody else in British military history is that virtually nobody else has had the level of responsibility he had, or did the same job that he did. Yeah, uh, I think the only people that you could compare with would be, say, perhaps Marlborough and, and Wellington. I mean, the point uh, as Gary's making is that Haig didn't just have to fight the war. He also had to deal with the British government, the Dominion governments in reference to the Indian government. He had to deal with the French and Belgian governments in reference to two million imperial troops plonked in their territory. That that would never happen again. No, uh, in the Second absolutely. World War, a commander in chief always had somebody above him to fly top cover. So, so you know, very difficult to, to compare Haig with any of his contemporaries. Well, that, well, that's right. I mean, and actually Montgomery is the one that's often trotted out as Haig's Second World War equivalent. 
it really doesn't work because not. Because, it, because it, I mean, setting aside, you know, whatever you think of Montgomery as, as a field commander, Haig, uh, from, from late 1915 through to the end of the war, is doing a, a job that in the Second World War, or indeed today, would be done by two or possibly three different individuals. Absolutely. So, so he is a theatre commander. He's what today we would call a national component, uh, sorry, a national contingent commander, you know, I, I, the top Brit in the coalition. Uh, and he's also a commander in chief who, as Gordon says, is actually dealing with the government and with the Allies and all the rest of it. And, um, and of course, in the Middle East in 1942, I mean, very sensibly, the decision is made that you split that job in two. So you've got Alexander, who's dealing with the high level stuff, leaving Montgomery to get on with 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 uh, uh, with uh, commanding the field army. So um, the idea of a, of a great British commander in the First World War, there is really if you could be, apply the criteria very strictly there is no other candidate because no other person had the same level of, of responsibility or on, on on the same scale so someone I've, I've been actually very impressed with in in recent years uh is is lieutenant general uh, sir william marshall who ended up as the the man who saw out the, the mesopotamia campaign after Moore died of cholera uh, and he and he was a decent brigadier in Gallipoli and the rest of it. And I think, you know, logistically, he was very sound. Tactically, he's very sound. But he's never had anything like the same level of responsibilities of Haig. So Haig really, in that sense, has no other competitor. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you articulated that a lot better than um, the process that went through my head to pick a commander <laughs> for the First World War, which was <laughs> just... So, right, he's in France... He's not. He's under French, and as I mentioned before, French is is not great, is he? I think the trouble with Fre French was a dashing commander in, in a cavalry command in the South African War. You know, you can't take anything away from him there. But I, I think that by the time the First World War came around, he was just not sufficiently robust physically or mentally to command troops in the most intensive war that this nation has ever fought before before or since. Um, I think his his major cock-up was was the Battle of Luce, which which compared to later battles, of course, is tiny, but at the time it was the biggest offensive the British had ever been in, involved in. And his handling of the reserves seems to me yeah. to be crazy. I mean, you if you've got a reserve, you must allow the man fighting the battle to have control of the reserves. You you don't you don't keep them back uh and and that i think was probably what did for french ultimately but but he wasn't the man to to command the baf uh later on in, in my view no he was i i actually think he was over promoted for yeah. the, for yeah. the, the, the job he's given from from the very beginning but how mm. often has that happened i mean because french was he he did well in the south african war as commander of the, of the cavalry division he did okay as a peacetime commander i think he was helped by the fact he had some pretty impressive subordinates including of course douglas hay who I, i'll mention it here in case we don't get it anywhere else uh, he actually is, is really important in reforming the army between the boer war and, and the first world war so Haig is far more than just a field commander he is a, a, a military reformer of some uh, of, of, of of some 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 status uh, but come the first world war you know french is the obvious man for the, for the job, but the obvious man is not always the, the best one. And ha if you think about most long wars, certainly the British army's been involved with uh, involved in, uh, the chap who is his most senior at the beginning is very rarely the senior one at the end. Uh, so if you think about the Second World War, you find exactly the same thing. So you know, Lord Gort in 1940 uh, disappears off the scene, well, he's off the uh, op operational scene, and he's replaced by uh, younger, more junior commanders who sort of make it through the initial stages of the war. And the same happens to, to French in the First World War. You know, as, as Gordon says, he blots his copybook over loose. Actually, that's simply the most latest example of him getting things wrong. He falls out with everybody. He's an absolute genius for making enemies. Uh, and so Haig is often blamed for the man who, you know, who stabs him in the back. Uh, well, I mean, there is something to that, but uh, there's a long line of people queuing up wielding daggers, <laughs> uh, including you know, the Prime Minister Asquith, he's fallen out with, he's fallen out with Kitchener, he's fallen out with the King. So so French has a, has a positive genius for making enemies. <laughs> and when um, and when he sort of falls under the proverbial bus, Haig is 
the, the heir apparent. Um, there's very, very little dissension when Haig gets the top job. And interestingly, if, if you fast forward three years to the, to the um, beginning of 1918, when Haig himself is commander in chief and coming under a lot of pressure, there's no obvious person to step up and replace him. Yeah. Lloyd George sends uh, Smuts and, and Hanky to the Western Front to find um, a replacement. And they come back and say, well, really, there isn't one. You know, there's no obvious, uh, you know, crown, crown prince. So uh, Haig, for better or for worse, I mean, I would argue for better, uh, makes it all the way through the war. But I think he's aided by the fact there is no ob there's no obvious pretender. Yeah, and, and I mean, possibly the only possible replacement might have been Plumer, but Plumer wouldn't have taken the job. Um, Plumer would have taken the job. No, I, I agree. And exactly. possibly Allenby, but Allenby, of course, was elsewhere by that stage. He was in Ballister. But I think going back to the point that, that Gary, Gary's first point, if when Haldane and, and Haig between them created the territorial force, the field service regulations uh, and all the rest of the, you know, the largest, the biggest reform for a generation, it's it's probably the the result of the Second World War might have been very different if if Haldane had a less incisive or less intelligent general. I mean, the the, the contribution that that Haig made as as DMO and DSD before the war was was enormous. It, it seems yeah. to me. Yes, well, the, one of the big criticisms of Haig is that he's a bit of a luddite and is obsessed with the cavalry. Um, there's the famous quote, isn't there, that uh, tanks will play no part in the in the First World War or something? No, I didn't uh... say that. No, no, no. He said there would always be a place for the well-bred horse. But remember, he was talking to an audience of the Royal Army Veterinary or the Army Veterinary yes. Corps. So, you know, he, he he'd shaped you. You shape your talk to the audience yeah. you're you're talking to. Well, I, I mean, Gordon's absolutely right about this. And I, I dug into this quote uh, when I was researching my biography. And um, A, it, 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 quite rightly, it's it, it's a quote given to the, the Royal Army Veterinary Corps. And actually, he's talking specifically about the science of horse breeding. Yeah. And, and given that uh, horses, as far as anybody in the military world can see in the early 1920s, when he makes this quote, that horses are going to play a major on the battlefield for the foreseeable future. Um, I think the only criticism you can make of Haig is that, uh, you know, the batteries on his crystal ball have worn down a bit because you know, he fails to accurately foresee what's going to happen in 15, 20 years time. But, it, you know, the, the mass mechanisation of most, but not all, armies uh, really is not being seen by many people in the, uh, in the early 20s. The other point is, actually, if you look at the full text of what he said, and, and fascinatingly, I trace this quote back it's made i think in 1926 27 it only seems to become current in the late 1950s because basil little hart discovered it and he quotes it in his uh his book the tanks two volume history of the royal tank regiment and of course little heart being little heart wrenches it out of context yeah and i actually went back and you know once i found the date and got back and found its report in the times i think and actually, the rest of the of what he says it actually is is is, is moderately progressive, pretty sensible, and uh, you know he he gives a few hostages to faulty, but basically he's saying that uh, the future of armies is going to be a mixture of artillery, infantry, cavalry, tanks, and aircraft. Uh, but we shouldn't think that um, machines are going to place are going to going to replace the horse. And actually, that's probably a pretty moderate consensual view in the mid-1920s, only when it's sort of wrenched out of context and stuck into a book, you know, 30 years later, does he appear to be an idiot. But at the time, in context, you know, fair point. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, if you look at his record as commander chief of the BEF, he very much pushes the development of the tank because he says that anything that will save casualties is worth pushing. Uh, he employed it earlier probably than he should have done but he did so because he as he said anything that'll save save lives he pushed aviation i mean he'd learned of the values of aviation when he was in india as, as inspector general of cavalry and he and he certainly supported aviation he uh supported the introduction of of, of the development of gas um as, as a as a weapon uh i mean the germans get the flak for using gas in fact the british launched something like three times as many gas attacks as the germans and the germans had the whole of the western front we only had the the british bit um he supported tunneling all these sort of 
technical advances, he was he was behind it. And, and that before he went to to um, command uh, some Egyptian cavalry in Kitchener's War, uh, he heard about the machine gun. Oh, what's this? He thought. So he rushes off to Enfield uh, on leave in in um, eighteen eighty, I think it was. Uh, to find out what is this new bit of kit. So he's, he's not a Luddite at all. No, ab absolutely. In fact, the machine gun bit, again, these these sort of received facts, facts, inverted commas, about Haig, very often you can trace them back to specific sources, they're Haig's enemies. Yeah. And that one comes from uh, a chap called Baker Carr, who fancied himself as a machine gun expert. And Haig had the... Uh, temerity to ignore Baker Carr's views and so Baker Carr gives him a good kicking in mm. his post-war memoirs and the point at which Haig is supposedly saying that you know machine guns are useless and what have you I actually sort of checked the date of it and at roughly the same time you know within a few weeks Haig is saying yeah machine guns are really really good idea what he rejected however was Baker Carr's suggestion of how they should be organized that's not to say that he rejected the idea no. of machine guns. Right. And um, Haig's record, actually, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, you could make the case that he's not a Luddite. He's too enthusiastic about new bits of kit. Mm. So both both gas and tanks, you can argue he introduced too soon and he expected too much of them. So the problem is not that he's actually anti-technology. He's actually, he places too much reliance on first generation untested untested um technology no you know you can argue it both ways but uh certainly i um i, I don't think that Haig comes off as, as as being a technophobe anything anything like it i mean it's a bit like a driver like me you know i can drive a car from a to b i'm not really too sure what's going on under the bonnet <laughs> and i think Haig's a bit like that with technology that actually he likes technology he sees what it does he actually isn't an expert in it but then again he doesn't pretend to be one piece of technology, the artillery, which played such a huge role in the war, is he he's criticized for being a little bit unimaginative with his use of artillery. Is that a, a fair criticism of him? I'm not sure that unimaginative is the word, but he does make some big mistakes or, or one particular mistake, I should say, uh, because, you know, Haig, again, if you go out and speak to someone on the street who knows next to nothing about the First World War, they'll probably say Haig was responsible for the disaster on the first day of, of, of the Somme. First yes, we're going to get to that, yes. Oh, right, okay, right. Well, uh, well, I've got this bit in Well, here. let's get to it now. Okay, well, well, okay, well I, I actually think that's been massively overplayed. But the one thing, uh, Haig's responsibility, I mean, uh, the one thing I think we can say he got wrong is he split his artillery fire. He basically ordered the artillery to attack too many targets rather than concentrating his fire. And that's the single biggest mistake I think Haig made, which did contribute to what happened on the 1st of July. After that, he got much better, I think largely because he learned to listen to his artillery experts. And on the whole, he would conduct an, uh, an arm's length approach. You know, so, so he would get a, you know, a subject matter experts would call it to, today, like, like Curly Birch or one of these, one of these gunners. And, and basically would hand it over to him and say, get on with it. You know, he was, Trying to interfere sometimes, but uh, he got better as the war went on in actually letting the experts do their expert stuff. And he would sort of stand back a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the trouble is we didn't have enough artillery. I mean, that's that sort of the, the, the basic thing. Also, people thought artillery would cut wire. It, it couldn't. Uh, not until you've got a graze fuse in late 1917 could, could we do that. But again... Everybody, when they look at the Somme, they look at what happens up in the north, which to those inexperienced, half-trained PALS battalions was appalling. Um, but if you go right down to the south, uh, where it was a, a battalion of the, the kings, I think, um, they cover 800 yards. They take the Dublin Redoubt and a bit of trench, and they have something like three men killed. Uh, why? Because the gunners down there could see where the Germans' positions were, we were on the high ground, Jones weren't. But um, you know, the Somme, if you if you if you have to expand for a tiny little army, and these these lessons are relevant today, if you have a tiny professional army with all its advantages, but you then have to expand enormously in time of war, and there's no inherent military experience in the population, which of course there there wasn't apart from the, the territorial force, 
uh, then you will have a psalm. You, you, you can't, you really can't avoid it. Uh, the only way they could have avoided was was in not not doing it. Um, so, Gordon, you're blaming the men. you're blaming the men. No, we're not blaming the men. We're blaming a system uh, which, since the time of Edward the uh, First, has said the British will fight their wars with professional soldiers. And there are huge advantages to that, but there are also disadvantages. Uh, for example, I mean, the French had compulsory military service. The Germans had compulsory military service. There is an inherent military capability and experience in the population. We didn't have that. So the, the new armies uh, were, were inexperienced, of course, uh, really under-trained, and that was nobody's fault. Uh, there simply weren't enough experienced officers and NCOs to, to train them. Their first, well, some of them were put in at Luce and it was a disaster. Uh, Somme really was the birth, the, 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 the first sort of... Um, baptism of fire, if you like, of the, of the new armies. Uh, but they learnt incredibly quickly. Look, 1st of July, bit of a disaster. 14th of July, phase two, remarkably successful because they learned. They looked at what had gone wrong on, on the first phase and they'd started to put it right. Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I, um, I came in for a bit of criticism a few years ago when I made basically that sort of argument by saying that the 1st of July is not a complete disaster. Uh, and if you look at the South, and of course, don't forget that the, the, the French army attacking next to the British, much more experienced, many more guns. And that, of course, aids the British attack in the South. Um, and the Germans themselves are, are pretty thinly spread in the South. Their positions are not nearly as strong as in the North. So just even a cursory look at the terrain in the Somme, you can see why, from the British point of view, there's failure in the north, but more success in the south. Um, the back to back to Haig, I think something you can criticize him for on the Somme is I think that he tries to make his army, if you like, um, run before it can walk. I think a more sorry, a less ambitious approach on the Somme at the very beginning would have paid dividends. And, and Gordon's point about the 14th of July is very important. Quite anything the else, they're attacking on a much narrower front there. They're able to mash their guns and get the way through. But that sort of, you know, fantasy football approach to strategy smashes head on into reality that Britain is in a coalition with the French. Britain is this junior partner. The French are saying, you will attack and we want you to attack there and we want to attack with your your main force. And so whatever Haig might have wanted to have done, in the end, you, know, you have to do sometimes things you don't want to do for the sake of coalition harmony. And that's one of the big facts I think that Haig actually scores quite well as a commander is that he has quite a spiky relationship with various French commanders, but on the whole, it's a productive relationship. Uh, he never sort of falls out with them big time, with his allies big time, like Montgomery does, for example, with the Americans in the Second World War. Uh, and Haig, you know, <laughs> one of the reasons why editing Haig's diaries was really quite amusing on occasions, because you find him sounding off about the French, being very, very rude about the French in his diary. And one of the reasons for that is because he's not rude to them face to face. He's being diplomatic. He's being a coalition general. And because he comes out of the meeting, you know, having you know, agreed to disagree with 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 Joff or Foch or what have you, then he goes and pours out all his bile in, in, in his diary. Well, better that than you actually slagging the French off to their face and, and causing ruptures within the coalition. And one of the re and I think people have failed to understand that when people read Haig's diaries, they say, oh yeah, he's very anti-French, what have you. Well, whatever he says on paper, that's not the way on the whole he behaves uh, when he's dealing with them face to face. Yeah, I mean, again, historically, if you want to be a great British commander, you have to get on with allies, because if you have a small professional army, you will fight your wars as part of a coalition. Uh, and Marlborough had awful problems with the Dutch Estates General, but he knew he had to keep them on side. Wellington knew exactly how useless the Spanish were, but he knew he had to keep them on side. Haig, and this was something that John French couldn't do. French didn't like the French. Um, Haig spoke French, spoke good French, spoke German as well, as a matter of fact. And as Gary says, uh, whatever you may say on paper, he made sure he knew the importance of, of a coalition hanging together. Yeah. And I think he was very good at that. 
I do too. And, and actually, in uh, in 1918, at right at the end of the war, it's no coincidence that um, Foch, you know, the French general who by that stage is the supreme Allied commander, he relies more on Haig than any of the other Allied commanders to get the business done. And actually, the the, the relationship, I, I don't, they're never bosom pals. But actually, I think it's a professional, you know, quite friendly relationship in the end. And they work very well as a, as, as a team. And that's really what you need in war. Yeah, that's that's key. But one thing that one tends to do when, when playing this ultimately um, irrelevant game of top commander is you tot up all the battles they've fought <laughs> and you see how many they've won and how many they've lost. Three, three points for a win, one for a draw. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And... Uh, and and you work out who's the best that way. So someone like Wellington maybe never lost a, a battle. Uh, Alexander the Great never lost a battle. Um, Haig, he has two rather costly draws, doesn't he? The Somme and, and Passchendaele. That's okay. Well, well I, I I I will uh, I will get on my soapbox for excellent, a, a excellent. Few and I'll I'll pass it over to Gordon to get on his soapbox. <laughs> I mean, the first thing to say is I. I don't think you're comparing like with like if you're comparing Wellington, let alone Alexander the Great, with Haig. Because Haig, in his final dispatch, dispatch, described the Western Front as being one long continuous engagement, by which he meant it's an attritional process, which begins in August 1914 and ends in November 1918. Now, there's a, an element of self, self-serving, it, it being self-serving to a degree, but fundamentally he's correct, that actually you are not going to achieve a knockout victory um, once trench warfare sets in. That the best you can do is to grind away the enemy, um, dreadful American word which entered the English language, trip the enemy, their strength, their morale, and all the rest of it. And um, the Somme and Third Eep or Passchendaele are I think actually it, it achieves that. I mean, as you put, I mean, actually saying it's a, it's a costly draw is, is actually not a bad way of putting it. Except I would argue that both the Somme and Third Ypres actually are strategic successes for the British, indeed for the Allies, and they are defeats and can be seen as no other way than defeats in a strategic sense for the Germans, even if they might have done relatively well tactically. It's only when mobile warfare recommences in uh, March 1918 that you, you have the possibility of achieving a sort of operational victory of the sort that Hay and others have been taught about at Staff College, looking back at the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the, American, the American Civil War. And the fact that it doesn't happen, at least not in the way that Hay would like it to happen, I think says volumes about the conditions of warfare on the Western Front and the limitations of the instruments available. So quickly compare what's happening in France in September 1918 to what's happening in Palestine at the same time. In France, you have a series of very, very successful attritional battles, which the Allies, and particularly the British, British Empire forces, are doing extremely well, but they never come anywhere near the sort of um, Megiddo success that Allenby pulls off simply because cavalry does not have the same place on the battlefield on the Western Front. The conditions are different. The Turkish enemy is different. And so Haig is never in a position to pull off that sort of victory. And I think he goes to his grave disappointed that he doesn't get his beloved cavalry into action in the way that he wants. Now, actually, cavalry is really quite important in the 100 days, and it's pretty effective, but not in these great sort of uh, operational level um swoops of battles in circle that, 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 that the Hague wants. It's simply not going to happen on, on, on the Western Front. It can happen in Palestine because the situation is is very, very different. Yeah, I mean, when we look at uh, Third Eight, for example, which which Hague's critics really zero in on that, when you're looking at Third Eight, I think you have to remember what was happening to the French at, at the time. The French army effectively has mutinied. Uh, they never called it mutiny. They called it collective uh, insubordination, I think, or collective disturbances. But effectively, they said, we're not going any further. And they, the French reckoned there were only something like two divisions that were totally, entirely loyal at, at the time. So 
Hague would probably have closed down 30. People call it Passion Day. Passion is only one of the battles of the 30. He would probably have closed it down probably in October when the weather turned. But he had to keep it going. You had to keep the Germans concentrating on the British front to allow Pétain to reform and sort out the French army and get it back to its allegiance, which which he did very effectively. The first thing he does is send half the French army on leave. Um, so if if uh, you know if you look at Passionier and third even in isolation, you say, well, you know, perhaps it went on a bit too long. But if you then zoom out and look what's happened to the French, the most important partner in the alliance, the piper that's the man who's paying the piper and therefore is going to call the tune, uh, then I think you get a you get a different uh, perspective perspective on it. And the thirty pulled in something like three quarters of the divisions that the Germans had on the Western Front, and it gave them a very bloody nose indeed. And uh, Ludendorff said, I think the fourth October, he said, "This is the black day of the German army." Now he he had quite a few black days. Uh, I mean, he'd also said the German army could not withstand another Somme. Uh, so I agree with Gary. They, they strategically, I would say, Somme and 30 were both strategic successes. Admittedly, with a very high uh, high price to pay, but nevertheless, uh, they were worth fighting. Passchendaele had to keep going. And you could argue that the Somme, in a sense, had to keep going because of what's happening at Verdun. And, and the Somme... Uh... You know, it's one of these unintended consequences that the, the the Germans were really, really shocked by what the British army did on the Somme. Because at the beginning of the Somme, they thought they were up against the French army and the Royal Navy and the Brits. You know, the British army wasn't really worth very much. By the end of the Somme, they knew they were in, in the field in the West against not one major army, but two major armies. Hmm. And the British are still learning. They were semi-trained i mean I've, I've used the analogy it's a bit like in a in, in a boxing match when you've got a sort of very strong but not terribly well 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 trained boxer who nonetheless lands a few really heavy blows and the germans are only too aware the british army is only to get better uh, and in fact what happens in the early spring of 1917 is some really significant doctrinal changes in tactical terms uh training so as uh, so a new, new new tactics come in the, the lewis gun becomes the the, the central uh um, point of, of the infantry moving is this away a portable the, heavy machine gun it, it was a portable it's a, it's a light it's a, well, i think right. probably do yourself a mischief if you try to run along firing it from the hip but in in the scheme of things it's it's a sort of lightish machine gun and all of this means that the british army is a lot more effective and, and Ludendorff and, and, and Hindenburg take a, take a look at this and say, well, we don't want to go through another song. Let's do something else. And what's that other, what's that other thing? It's unrestricted uh, submarine warfare, which they basically means they sink any ship on the seas at sight, uh, neutral ships as well as British ships. And they know this is going to bring the United States into the war. But they gamble that they will succeed in knocking the British out of the war by starving the British into submission, cutting the Atlantic lifeline before the Americans get into the war and until and, and before American armies can could, can make a difference. Uh, it's a gamble. It's a gamble which doesn't pay off. It's probably short of this doing the sensible thing of negotiating a peace. It's the Germans' best bet, I would suggest, in 1917. And it's it's uh, it's a direct result of the Battle of the Somme. Now, that, now Hay clearly does not have that in mind when he launches the battle. But nonetheless, the pressure that the Somme puts on the Germans pushes them down this for them ultimately disastrous path, which plays a big role in hammering the, the nail into the German coffin in the First World War. So you mentioned the I mean 1918, the Hundred Day, Hundred Days campaign. That's one of Britain's greatest ever victories, including all the wars, isn't it? Well, yeah. I would certainly, I would certainly say so. Um, again, you're not, I keep repeating myself. You're not comparing like with like. I know <laughs> it's. I know I'm annoying you both by doing this. Um, but uh, but if you if you if you look at purely on on terms of scale, Britain is fighting with five armies on the Western Front as part of. In effect, an army group. They don't, they don't call it an army group, but that's what the British Expeditionary Force is. Britain has never fought a land campaign on that scale before or since. So you look at 
Wellington's campaigns, which are model campaigns in all sorts of ways, they're a much, much smaller scale. And fast forward to, I guess, 44, 45, which is the nearest equivalent, when Britain has one much smaller army group consisting of Second British Army and First Canadian Army among uh, an army of roughly comparable size to the First World War, but the bulk of those are Americans and French and other people. So Britain never, ever deploys an army of that size again. So on that level alone, these are the greatest victories in terms of scale that Britain has ever won. Yeah. And and Gordon, it wouldn't be down to the Americans because surely once their might appears in, in 1917, that's why Britain won, not necessarily down to any kind of great... No, 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 no. No, the, the significance of the Americans uh, has really got nothing to do with the American um, expeditionary force. It's the fact that the Americans agreed to to let the British let contracts in America for all manner of stuff that our own industry couldn't produce or couldn't produce in sufficient quantities. Uh, now, and when the Germans complained, the Americans said, well, of course, yes, well, we'll sell to you as well, but you'll have to collect it. Now, of course, the Germans couldn't collect it because Britannia ruled the waves. Uh, that, that, it seems to me, is is the, the most significant um, assistance that they, or effect that the Americans had in the First World War. Now, the, of course, this huge untapped pool of manpower that had an enormous effect, a moral effect on on Germany. What they actually did wasn't very much. What they did was was reasonably well, but like the British in 1914, 15, 16, they were learning. Uh, so things like uh, the Meuse-Argonne offensive was pretty pedestrian, hardly surprising, um, and interestingly. Pershing and Hay got on terribly well together. Um, Woodrow Wilson had instructed Pershing that he was not to be poodles of the British, uh, which is why they were given a sector way down with the French either side of them. But Pershing was quite prepared to lend units to help Haig on the guise of training. I think he lent uh, the British three engineer regiments for um, Cambrai. And there was quite a lot of that going on. And Pershing in his diary, much, much later, long after the war, when criticism of Haig is building up, he says in his diary, how can they do this to the man who won the war? Yeah, and I, I'd agree with all of that. I mean, the the role of the Americans is critical, uh, but not for the obvious reasons, rather from, from the reasons that, that Gordon Gordon has given. I, I think also worth mentioning the United States Navy uh, has, has, a, has a small but not insignificant role in, in the first battle of the Atlantic. And, the, and as Gordon mentioned, the moral impact of these Americans arriving is, is really significant. I mean, both on the Germans, who um, can see, you know, millions, I mean, eventually literally millions of Americans pouring onto the Western Front, and also for, for the British and the French, who suddenly, who having lost an ally in the form of Russia, which drops out beginning of 1918, suddenly gets this, 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 this new ally coming in. The broader point I would make is actually, I'd, I'd never really got hung up on, you know, who, well, which country is the most important factor in deciding the war. It's a coalition victory. And unless we understand that, then we won't get very far because the French, they're not as important as in 1918, I think, in actually fighting on the ground as the British are. Not everybody would agree with that. But if the French army hadn't borne the burden, against the Germans in 1914, 1915, 1916, arguably the first bit of 1917, the Allies wouldn't have been in a position to win in 1918. So it is genuinely a coalition victory. And of course, I should actually say that the British Expeditionary Force itself is a coalition force. There are troops from the UK. There's also two very powerful elite corps, uh, the Canadian Corps, uh, the Australian Corps in 1918, there's the New Zealand division, which actually is the size of a small corps, actually. Uh, it's it's really up to strength because the Kiwis introduced conscription early on. Uh, it's got a lot of artillery. There's a South African brigade. Uh, Indian troops have served earlier on the Western Front. Most of them have gone by 1918. There's still some cavalry there. So we're using the term British quite loosely. We actually mean British Empire. And I think that's that's critical to understand that. Yeah, I think also it's worth remembering that France 
with 7 million less population than the United Kingdom, have twice as many military deaths. And it's actually worse than that because the French population was an aging population and therefore the number of the percentage of men of military age was a much smaller percentage than it was in the UK, which then had a, a young population. One tends to forget that. Uh, if you look at the casualties among French infantry officers, uh, it's appalling. I mean, something like 40% of all the officers at regimental duty, junior officers, uh, are either killed or wounded. I mean, they, 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 they take a hell of a hammering. Mm. And if they hadn't, uh, then we wouldn't be in a position to win the war later on in 1918. And if I could just say something more about the Americans, the Americans actually do quite a lot of heavy fighting uh, in Meuse-Argonne, but really in only the last six weeks of the war. So actually what they do is pretty unpleasant. And actually some of it, the fighting is actually very effective. Two divisions fight up with the British and, and, and they do very well. But all of this means that the junior commanders of the US Army in the First World War who become the senior commanders of the US Army in the Second World War, have a very different idea about things because mm. their First World War is, is, is brief but brutal. And so they carry into the Second World War uh, a rather different approach than the British. Again, all British commanders of the Second World War, senior commanders, mostly have been through the First World War as junior officers. They have had four years of heavy fighting. The Americans, in effect, have had six weeks. And it really does make a difference in the, the, the American willingness in the Second World War to take risks, to risk lives. The British are much more casualty averse. In fact, I would argue that in that sense, uh, America's First World War, in the sense of affecting their views on casualties, it's actually Vietnam, which has a similar impact on the American officer corps of the sort of 60s, 70s, 60s and 70s that the First World War has on, on, on the British officer corps of the 1940s. So the Americans, I think, do play you know, not an insignificant role on the battlefield, but it's a very different experience that of the British. And that really matters when the next war comes along 25 years later. Well, what I mentioned at the start was that Haig's reputation really suffered after his death. And uh, during the sort of revisionist approach to the First World War in the 60s, when it was lions, the lions led by donkeys myth. But now his reputation surely are we on the way to it being restored because from what everything you've both said today it's almost a crime that he's viewed in such a negative way by by some i, I think historically um most historians now i think uh would take the view that that uh that gary and i would take I and mean, they may take it slightly right or, or left um i don't think the public uh have yet come round to that view, and I don't suppose they will, largely because most members of the public don't read history. They get their history from television. Um, you know, even when, when, when I think it was Haig, actually, I mean, not not our Haig, but um, uh, leader William of the Conservative Haig. Party, William Haig, who actually said in the House of Commons, referring to something, it's a bit like Haig moving his drinks cabinet a foot nearer Berlin. I mean, that sort of stupidity is still there. And if politicians think that, uh, we can probably not expect the, the public to think of it. I mean, we try. I know Gary's tried. Uh, we all try. John Terrain ploughed a very lonely furrow uh, for many years. Uh, I think he possibly over-gilded the lily, as it were. Uh, but no, I mean, I think I think historic, sensible historians now uh, would would agree, I think, with 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 us um, to a lesser, greater or lesser degree, but I suspect not the public. Can, can I can I cheekily put in a plug for another podcast? I was about to do that. Military History Plus. That's the one. It's the, it's a podcast which I, I I'm doing with my friend and colleague Spencer Jones. We've actually just finished a a, a three episode mini series on the historiography of the First World War, and we devote an entire uh, podcast to. To, to John Terrain, who I think is is the single most important to, uh, scholar of Hague. Um, so I, I, I probably slightly differ from 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 Gordon in, in one sense is that today I think there are still perhaps surprisingly some reputable historians who have have a downer on Hague to a degree which I don't quite see why. I, I think he's one of these people, Hague that is, who actually really generates really strong views uh 
pro and 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 con and some people i won't name him but one prominent historian I'm, i've discussed this and he says really just doesn't like haig and uh, he never will like haig and he reviews he views all haig's activities through that prism of of, of of not liking him so so the the, the jury is sort of out but I, but there's very few historians today who would go the full John Laffin, if I could put it that way, of seeing Haig as unreconstructed donkey, as stupid and all the rest of it. When I was writing my Haig biography, um, I sort of dug into some of his more controversial decisions. And what slightly surprised me, I think pretty well every time, you can, you can work out why he took the decision he did. It might not have been the right decision, but it wasn't an irrational decision either. And I think the the one thing that I think possibly we have won the day on is that increasingly people are, albeit grudgingly, seeing Haig as, as as a rational, competent commander, not someone who's completely just out there and just you know throwing out random ra- random commands. About the way that ordinary people view Haig, well, <laughs> um, I naively thought that. Uh, the likes of us, Gordon and, and myself and various other historians, actually won a few historiographical battles around the turn of the century. Then comes the centenary and they all get trotted out again and actually given validity by some, you know, in many cases, pretty appalling television programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must say that uh, I've, um, I think I've been crossed off the BBC's Christmas card list <laughs> because uh, some of the things I said about some of their programs. So I haven't had many invitations to appear recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's great. It's, it's very sad, actually, because uh, a lot of the, the the really good work that is done to try and <clears throat> put uh, the First World War into a broader context to try and you know contextualise things it was undone by the Sentinel. Very, or very, the very best you can say it it didn't help. Um, and I think we're going to be stuck in that sort of rut for some time to come. Th- those people who are prepared to do a bit of reading, to um, to do a bit of digging, I think will come to a rather different view of Haig and indeed the First World War than the the Black Adder view. Uh, but most people, as Gordon suggests, simply aren't going to do that. Yes, it's it's a sad state of affairs, and I'm delighted that you both mentioned Black Adder and I didn't, particularly. Gordon, even if you were quoting someone quoting Blackadder. But, I mean, I've just been playing devil's advocate on this one. I mean, it's the sheer scale. It's extraordinary, really. And also the fact that I think his men liked him as well, which is important, isn't it? Well, if you look at his funeral, um, when he, I mean, in in London, I can't remember the numbers now, but the numbers who filed past his coffin, and when he was lying in state in St Giles's, the queue was a mile long in driving rain. Uh, and, the, and many of these were his soldiers. I I, 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 I absolutely agree with that. What I would say, actually, is that while the war was going on, many soldiers really didn't have a strong view either way on Haig, um, because he was it was just too remote. He was up there. What have you? Mm. It's post-war when people realised what he had done to win the war, and also his very active role as the president of the British Legion. So, in effect, the the leader of British ex-servicemen that made him tremendously popular but the idea that during during the war people were sort of cursing Haig and, and what have you is is simply isn't true um going back to Blackadder I must say I'm, I'm actually quite a fan of Blackadder uh in all sorts of ways because I, I just love the way it sort of punctures history and I don't like the first world war series as much as some of the others probably because it's a bit too close to home yes. um but actually I think it's, it's a great British tradition of sort of you know debunking history um the problem is and when when, when people say to me you know well you know, you're a first world war historian how can you possibly like black adder i say well it's a brilliant comedy but don't mistake it for a documentary yeah which which, which too many people do but the, the the final thing i would just say about this is simply that whatever we might think about the way that people view the first world war it's fundamentally because it's one of the greatest tragedies that has occurred globally, certainly to Britain. I mean, the, the losses of the First World War, the, the deaths of the First World War, one million British Empire dead between 1914 and 18, about a third of that in the Second World War. And so it's not surprising, given the number of widows and orphans that are left, that people do have this dreadful impression of the First World War. 
and trying to argue rationally, yes, but this is a war that needed to be fought because of X, Y, Z, it always comes second to raw emotion. And as a historian, I might regret that. As a human being, I can completely understand why that's the case. Yeah, and I mean, if you're a if you're a Joe Soap on the street, the Kaiser's not really a, that bad, whereas Hitler's frightful. Uh, and if you just look at it in, in those lines, you know, the the First World War awful, unnecessary, presided over by butchers and bunglers. Uh, Second World War, Britain stood alone. Of course, we didn't. The empire was still there. Um, you know, brave little Britain taking on the awful fascists. And if you look at and people do look at it that terribly simplistic way, which I get very irritated about. So there's damn all I can do about it. Well, I think we've gone some way to righting the wrongs. And Haig has, by even being mentioned as one of the great British commanders, that's a quite rightly, of course, as we've discussed today, I think the listeners will all be huge Hague fans now, I'm, I've no doubt. <laughs> but Gordon, Gary, thank you so much for your time. I'll put links into all your books and the Military History Plus podcast as well. Thank you. Um, but thank you. Thank you. It's always always fun to talk. Really enjoyed it. Good to see you again, Gordon. <laughs> yeah, and you, Gary. I haven't seen you since Broadhurst Funeral, actually. Thank you so much for listening. Please do rate and review and share, share, share. Happy New Year, and I wish you all the best to you and your families for 2024. Thank you and good night.